If you have a Bible, uh, please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, uh, 17 through 24. Uh, We are in the part of Ephesians where Paul is transitioning uh, from what is true about us in Christ to how to live our lives with respect to what is true about us in Christ. Um, And so we'll be kind of referencing some of the things in the first three chapters of Ephesians as well. But I'm going to read now from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, O God, for the work that you have done in our lives through Christ. That you have given us these new clothes of faith. We pray that that as you have done that in our lives, we would learn to live in them. And live by them, by your grace in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. How would you like it if uh, in your life and in your vocation, you became known as the hatchet man? If that is who you were, the hatchet man. uh, That became your nickname. That's what Richard Nixon called Charles Colson when Charles Colson worked in his White House when Nixon was the president. He said, Colson is my hatchet man. And what Nixon meant by that was that whenever there was a job that needed doing that was unpleasant, and as we came to sort of be found out, even in certain circumstances illegal, Charles Colson was the man that he would call because Colson would really do anything for the president. He once said, I'd walk over my own grandmother to get the president reelected for a second term. But that actually got me to be th- to thinking, you know, like how does somebody not how does somebody become known? How does somebody's identity become known as the hatchet man, you know, where a person becomes identified and identifiable by things like the raw pursuit of power or however that power is attained by deception by waging all-out war against his enemies no matter you know who he has to hurt and I think the answer to that question is that practice makes perfect the more that you do those kinds of things the easier it becomes and the more it becomes identifiable with you you tell one small lie and you get away with it and then you get rewarded for it Well, it makes it easier to tell slightly larger lies and then kind of go on down the line. And if you're someone who kind of gets really close to that seat of power, right, uh, and you get rewarded for it and all of a sudden you're on the inside 
And then you're asked to do things that are, you know, not only unsavory, but over time illegal. Well, you do it. Because one of the things that you know is that if you don't do it, there's going to be somebody who is willing to do it, and you might as well reap the reward of having a seat at the table. And so in Colson's own testimony, you just do those things so many times that it just becomes a part of your persona, a part of who you are. You are the hatchet man. Now, we're not all ruthless political operatives, and that's thankfully so. But all of us does know or, or do know what it means to soak in particular sins or to sit in particular struggles for long enough that they sort of just become a part of who we are. They become simply a part of our operating system, our persona. Maybe it's uh, an addiction that you've had for so long that you've just come to the conclusion, well, this is who I am. Or maybe you have become so accustomed and vocationally to manipulating the truth or manipulating the numbers in a certain amount of ways that you can convince yourself that you're telling the truth even when you're lying. Being steeped in sinful behavior so that it becomes an inextricable, or at least a perceived inextricable part of who you are, really lies at the root of Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4. But it begs a question, is it really that way? Are we inextricably tied to our sin? Put it another way, is change possible? Is change in our lives possible? Will we always be defined by the sin that we have cultivated in our lives? Or is there the possibility of freedom? And is there the possibility of transformation? Now, let me say that I I know that even asking that question can become fraught with misunderstanding. Because here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul implores us to take off the old way of living and to put on the new way of living that Christ has given to us as a gift. So absolutely, yes, change and transformation in the Christian life is not only possible, the the, the, the theologians call it sanctification, the Bible calls it sanctification. It's not only possible, it's also normative and expected in the life of the follower of Jesus. But I do know that in speaking of that way, if we're not careful to understand it in the full orbedness of the scriptures, it can be massively shame-inducing to you as well. Because you may be thinking right now, there's nothing that I want more than to change. There's nothing that I want more. I want it so badly. I pray every single day when I wake up that I will change. I beg God so badly to change. So why am I still struggling with all the things that I still struggle with? Well, the Apostle Paul's familiar with that question as well. He testifies to that question about himself in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? So it is true. Transformation of our lives is real. And struggle with sin will endure in some measure until Jesus returns. Both are true. 
So my encouragement to you as we walk through this passage, and we walk through this, this passage about transformational hope, that we do it with hope. We do it clinging to Christ, and we do it clinging to his grace. And we hope in the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, who promises never to give up on us. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Because Paul is urging you to hope. He's urging you to hope. And, and, and he's saying it this way. You are brought from death to life by Christ. You've been brought from death to life by Christ. Live now into your new life in Christ. Live into the new life that you have in Christ. You've been brought from death to life by Jesus, by his grace. Live into it. Take off what is old, put on what is new. Now, here's where the confusion can come in. If you just jump into Ephesians, like if I ripped out this page of my Bible and handed it to you and said, read Ephesians 4, you know, this will tell you everything that you need to know. You could be very confused by that because it would be understandable if you concluded by only reading Ephesians 4 that if you work really hard to maintain unity among your fellow church members, if you utilize all of the diverse gifts that we have and we use them together to, to serve the body of Christ, and if you stop doing really bad things and you start doing really good things, well, then God is going to love you and he's going to bring you into his family. That would be a potential problem of jumping into Ephesians 4 without first reading Ephesians 1 through 3. Remember, Paul wrote Ephesians 1 through 3 before he wrote Ephesians 4. So it stands on the foundations of the first three chapters. And what that means is this. This is not a passage about how to become a Christian. It is not instructing you to just stop being bad and to start being good so that God will love you. That's not what the gospel says. You have to read these words in light of chapters 1 through 3, which can be summarized like this. You and I and every human being are dead in our sins. We're not knocked unconscious. We're not sick. We're dead in our sins. While we were dead in our sins, God, who is the great actor in the drama of our salvation, God made you alive in Christ. What does that mean? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, not by works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift of God. So you've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for the purpose of witnessing to the world the transformative power of the gospel to save you and to make you new. Now, we display the power of the gospel, at least in Ephesians 4. There are more ways, but at least in the context of Ephesians 4, we display the transformative power of the gospel in our unity, in diversity, all these diverse people within the body of Christ working together for one common goal, to exalt Jesus in our lives and in the world, but also through our holiness, through our unity and through our holiness. So with the foundation of salvation by grace alone through faith alone firmly set, Paul builds on it. And he builds on it by talking here about the futility of unbelief and the renewal 
of faith, the futility of unbelief and the renewal of faith. So first, let's look at the futility of unbelief. Paul takes us through here in Ephesians 4 a cycle of spiritual degradation in verses 17 through 19 that's very similar actually to what he writes about in Romans chapter 1 in a little bit more detail. But basically what he's saying is that the outward manifestations of evil and wickedness uh, uh, among those who are unbelievers begins inwardly. It begins in the heart, it proceeds to the mind, it proceeds from there into uh, their actions. And so what he says is that this, this, this degradation of life begins with the hardness of heart. You have to work your way kind of to the end of verse 18 to see that this is where it all begins. But Paul says that what occurs in our minds and in our lives is due, that's the word that he uses, is due to the hardness of hearts. Now that sin and sinful actions begins in the heart is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Paul didn't invent it. It's in the Old Testament and the New Testament from the beginning to the end. The prophet Jeremiah said, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? King David, after he had confessed to God the horrendous sin that he committed of adultery and murder, when he had confessed his sin to God, he said, Create in me, O God, a clean heart. And renew a right spirit within me. He knew that those actions came out of a heart that in some ways had become hard. Jesus himself said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, fault with false witness, and slander. You see, the heart, biblically speaking, is the motivating center of our lives. The heart is the motivating center of our lives. When it is soft and pliable, there is room for the Holy Spirit to do that work of renewal and grace and sanctification in our lives. But when it is hard, and then it remains hard over the course of time, it becomes calloused. That's actually the word that Paul uses there in verse 19. It becomes callous. And then when it becomes callous, our sinful behavior becomes second nature to us as our consciences weaken to the point of providing little resistance to sin. Think about it like this. Have you ever tried to play a stringed instrument in your life? The guitar, uh, the cello, the violin, anything like that. I tried to, well, I, um, I sort of learned to play the guitar, but then I stopped playing the guitar and I remember this all over again. If you try to play the guitar, like that one sitting right there, which has steel strings uh, set against a wooden background, do you know what you do to make notes and chords? With these soft little tender, you know, little parts of your fingers, you push those steel strings against that wood. That's what makes a note. You do that with uh, several strings, that's what makes a chord. When you first start playing the guitar, do you know what? That hurts like crazy. Like my little, poor little pads of my fingers are getting raw, you know? But here's the thing, if you persevere and you keep going and you keep playing, do you know what happens to your fingertips? They get calluses. They, this skin on the tips of your fingers gets hard and then you play the guitar and you don't feel a thing at all. The callus has been built and you feel nothing. That's the way that it works in our lives with things that overtake us. 
that begin to become a normative part of our lives that are contrary to the will and to the ways of God. Maybe you've gone through this in your own life. Maybe you've been in a, a very stressful season in your life and you don't really know how to alleviate it. And so, you know, you're alone at some point, you click on that website, but then as soon as you do it, what do you feel? You feel overwhelmed by sadness. You feel overwhelmed by this kind of guilt. You just feel overwhelmed by, by what you've done. But the stress has not been alleviated and it's still in your life. And so maybe you click again and then maybe you click again and again and again and again. And every single time that you click, you, you feel less bad. You feel less sorrow. You feel less, uh, you, your heart is beginning to harden until it might possibly grow callous. That is how hurtful, sinful behavior can simply become a normative part of our lives over the course of time. And from that hardness of heart, the cycle continues to darkness of mind. This is the beginning of verse 18, where Paul talks about those persisting in unbelief. He is talking about unbelievers here, but he shifts over when he's encouraging believers not to do these things to kind of say that there are things that we can learn from this. Uh, he shifts over in verse 18 uh, that those persisting in unbelief in their hearts are darkened in their understanding. They're darkened in their understanding. So we begin not only to desire with our hearts things that are contrary to the will of God, we start to begin to think that those things are actually true. Our minds begin to turn the truth backwards. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, we become like those who call evil good and good evil. We turn things upside down. That's the fruit of a darkened mind. Because unbelief corrupts us at the very core of our thinking. Where we begin to see the truth of things that are laid out for us in the scriptures as lies. But then we see the lies of the world that surround us all the time as the truth. Think about it like this. Here's one example. If your heart is telling you that there is no God or that God is impersonal and you know, doesn't really control you know, anything in this world, it's just a force of, of something that is out there, totally detached from your life and the life of the world, well, that your heart is going to begin to desire something. In our immediate context, and when I say our immediate context, I'm talking about us in Houston, you know, right around here. What our hearts are largely going to desire is probably some type of, of self-satisfaction, right? In our culture, something like comfort, uh, ease, pleasure, status, you know, those kinds of things. Now, if that is where our heart lies, if our heart lies saying, you know, what I really want is a, is a really easy life where I'm happy and I seek pleasure and I'm well thought of, well, our mind starts to think about what that would entail, right? And maybe the mind says, you know, it's ridiculous and actually wrong to, you know, to hold to some kind of antiquated and, and, and outdated standard of, um, you know, sexual morality. In fact, you know, you may continue to think, in fact, to do so or to even suggest that there is a standard at all, that's actually what's, ooh, that was a little bit loud. That's actually what was evil, evil and immoral, you know, to, to, to say that there's some standard out there, that's what's wrong, that's immoral, that's evil. Or if the heart says, I want comfort, the mind can say, well, why do I, 
why am I falling behind by holding to these ethical standards in my vocation when everybody that I'm competing against is not? I'm not on a level playing field, you know? I need to get on a level playing field. Otherwise, I'm going to just get lapped, you know, by everybody if I don't do this. And so if everybody is, is cheating in some way, I have to kind of get on the same page or I'm just going to completely fail. See, those are hearts that become hard and it leads to thinking that becomes deceived, as Paul would have us to hear. So the hardened heart leads to the darkened mind, which leads to the surrendered life. And by surrender, in this case, I'm talking about the consequences uh, of a hardened heart and a darkened mind that are given over to things that are opposed to God, but apart from the common restraining grace of God, where none of us are as bad as we possibly could be, which is really a wonderful thing. Paul talks about this in verse 19. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so sin simply becomes a lifestyle. And the question is, how could it not? But, but, which is a massively important word in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which he employs with great effect right here in verse 20. This cycle of and spiral of degradation, of degrading into a lifestyle unmoored from the ways of God is not a fait accompli. It is not. In fact, it won't characterize the life of a believer at all. And that is where we see the renewal of faith. The renewal of faith follows a cycle as well, but instead of being a spiral of degradation and death, it is a cycle of putting off the old self, being renewed in your mind, and putting on the new self. This is how he explains it here in Ephesians chapter 4. The first part of the renewal of faith is putting off the old self. Now the grammar in verse 22 in the original language is actually a little confusing. But in the Greek, and to be consistent with things that Paul has written similarly in others of his letter, he's more, he's more saying, having put off the old self. Having put off the old self. Now this is a reminder that what Paul is encouraging us into is living into the new lives that we have given to us as a gift of God's grace. Not that we are the actors. Not that our salvation consists of us stopping the bad and starting the good. Having put on the new self. But what is it about the old self that can continue to be problematic for someone who is a believer? That's the question. Well, the old self is corrupt through deceitful desires. The desires of the old life. Those things that we believe are good and true and beautiful and right that brought us life and thriving in this world, they all lied to us. Now, think about that for a minute. How does living your life uh, as a believer still kind of leaning toward the old way of life, deceive you. I read a book one time where a theologian called this living as a practical atheist, meaning you confess confess Christ as your Lord and your Savior, but you live your life as if he doesn't exist at all, and he's not like um, involved in your life in any way. Well, one one way people do this is that they are deceived about what God says about our bodies, 
The Bible tells us that we are knit together in our mother's wombs, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are created in the image of God, that the ultimate destiny of our bodies is not death and decay. That's temporary. The ultimate destiny of our bodies is resurrection and physical life with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But it is possible to believe that, uh, that it, it, for Christians to believe that only thing that matters for them is their soul. So as long as they're going to church or they're going to Bible study, they're praying or they're reading their Bible, it, it's possible to believe it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can do whatever I want to with my body because that part doesn't matter. That part's going away anyway. It's only about my soul. That is not true. And that's a way that you can live with a vestige of the old life, even in the new. Another way people do this, and I want to tread really carefully here because this is a complicated issue with moving parts. So I'm really talking about just ways that we do this because we're, we're, we're concerned that God is not really in control of all things. But it is possible to confess that you believe in God, but to live as if he's not in control of your life and then ultimately to be consumed by fear and to be consumed by worry and to be consumed by anxiety. Now, I've never had this experience in my life, but I'm told, this is actually not true, that it is possible you know, to stay awake at night and to toss and turn, worried about everything, worried that God's not going to provide for you, worried that God's not going to capture the hearts of your children, you know, worried that something in some area of your life is ultimately going to go wrong. And, and, and if we continue in that sort of cycle, then we start to believe that what we really have to do is we have to control every single detail of our lives we have to have absolute control over everything because if there's one little aspect of our lives that we can't control we're afraid that everything will crumble the entire foundation will fall this isn't true the Bible tells us that God knows every single hair that is on our heads. He tells us that he clothes us more than the lilies of the field that are beautifully clothed. That he feeds us more than the birds of the air that he even provides for them. How much more so, he says, O oh, you of little faith. That's what Jesus says. Will he also clothe and provide for you? That's the first part. The second part of the renewal of faith is being renewed in our minds. To be re- note that that uh, Paul uses a passive verb here that we are renewed, not that we renew ourselves. We are renewed. What he's saying there is that once you have come to Christ by faith and you've accepted that gift of grace, the Holy Spirit invades your life, and the Holy Spirit is the agent of renewal of your mind. And God gives us gifts that the Holy Spirit then takes and then cultivates in our lives so that we are renewed in our thinking. The Bible to be soaked in and saturated in one another. The body of Christ to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. The third part of the renewal of faith is putting on the new self. And what this really means is that we learn to live our lives in the new clothes that God has given us by his grace. 
first become a, you first become a Christian and, and it's like Jesus taking off all of the old clothes that you wore that were dirty and they needed to kind of be burned, right? And puts on new clothes. But you're thinking, these don't really fit, even though they do. They fit perfectly, but you're kind of uncomfortable in them, right? They, they don't really fit. Our, the life of a follower of Christ through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you is learning to live in comfort of the new clothes that God has given us as those who are united to Christ. So that's the question. Is change possible? Is transformation real? Can Jesus really be at work in my life and in my heart, making me more and more conformed to the image of Christ because of his grace? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he can. You can have hope in that. Run to him in repentance when you fall. Receive his forgiveness. Receive that renewal. Open yourself to his word and to his Spirit, lean into his grace and have hope. That's what happened to Charles Colson. That is, you know, Richard Nixon's hatchet man did not always remain the hatchet man. When, the, um, when it started to become clear that there were going to be investigations launched into the Pentagon Papers and also into the Watergate burglary. Charles Colson knew that at some point that light was going to come and rest upon him at some place in that line. And he was fearful of that. He was not a particularly religious man. And he was scared about being indicted and being tried and going to jail. And in that period of time before he went to prison, he was visited by a friend and that friend gave him a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And Charles Colson opened that book And he began to read that book. And as he began to read that book, Mere Christianity, he wept. He wept his way through Mere Christianity. At the end of that, he submitted his life to Christ right then and there. He went to prison, a Christian. And while in prison, God was at work in his life. And when he came out of prison, Charles Colson was no longer the hatchet man. He was an ambassador for Christ. He launched the ministry, prison fellowship. He took every opportunity that he could possibly take to to tell anybody and everybody about what God had done in his life, saying things like, hey, look, if God can change me, he can do anything. He wasn't the hatchet man. He was Christ's man. If you trust in Christ by faith, you are a new creation. That is a fact. God gives us good gifts to learn how to live into that new creation, to learn how to get comfortable in the new clothes that he has given to us, to put off the old, to be renewed, and to put on the new. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for what you have done in our lives by your grace. We do pray that we would lean into it as those held captive to the power of of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.